Hello and welcome to If Anyone Cares. My name is Jolly James. Uh, today we have a show that I did in, I think, November or December. Uh, it was part of the Story of Us series I do on Over the Line in association with All In Sports Talk. It's something that uh, I'm very, very proud of that I get to do. It's probably one of the most fulfilling things I get to do is just talk to American soccer people about their American soccer story. And this particular episode was with a man who participated in two World Cups for the United States of America back in 1994 and 1998, one MLS Cup in 2002 with the LA Galaxy. And now you can see him on Fox Sports. His name is Alexi Lawless, and he was very, very kind to be interviewed by me for the second time uh, that year. And he's, I mean, he's just a um, super down-to-earth guy. Loves talking soccer, loves participating and growing this American culture with other people that love this sport in this country. It was just an honor to get to talk to him because he's one of the guys I've looked up to when I started doing internet and television and stuff like that. And just to be able to have that moment with him was an incredible time. But I thought I'd release this show. We had some delays with some other interviews. So I thought I'd drop this to kind of fill that time I haven't recorded in a month. I've been out of town. But uh, we, w- we should get back to a normal schedule here coming soon. Try to drop it every two weeks. Um, but college and over the line are weekly and everything like that. So if anyone cares, it's definitely still a priority of mine. But I've just been out of town. We haven't really got uh, too many things done with delays and technical difficulties and, and trying to figure out some things. But I promise you, the show is not ending we're still going to have shows. I got two interviews that coming up next week that I'm going to stagger for the next two weeks. But it's going to be a great time. We thank you so much for listening to the show. As always, you can find us on Twitter at if anyone cares underscore. You can find me at Rella James IAC. You can follow Alexi Lawless, our guest, at uh, Alexi Lawless. L A L A S is his last name. I'm just I'm so thankful that you guys listen. Um, you can subscribe to the show iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. I am so thankful for Spotify because the number shot up when I got Spotify. And um, I, I should say we got Spotify. The world team, people who listen to the show is just as much as part of the show as any guest or myself. I, I do appreciate you don't get you don't edit the show, which is <laughs> would be nice. But um, but I'm just so thankful they listen to the show. I am currently recording in a bathroom right now, which is it, it's standard. If anyone cares, it's a wild time. You should expect for me to record in weird places. I've done shows in my car. I've done shows in the bathrooms. Um, we just try to do it for you guys. So we thank you for listening. Um, share the show with a friend. Leave five stars. Say nice comments on iTunes and Google Play and Spotify. And we're just so thankful for you. But without further ado, here is my interview with Alexi Lalas. Welcome to another episode of The Story of Us. On the line today, we have a man who's done almost everything in the aspect of the beautiful game here in this country. A U.S. international who has played in a major league in Europe, who has opened up MLS in 1996, and has represented the country on the biggest stage at the FIFA World Cup. A front office executive at one point, a National Soccer Hall of Famer, 
and now either your favorite or least favorite television personality for Fox Sports. A podcaster who hosts the State of the Union podcast available on all major platforms, and now a referee apparently uh, via social media. Oh, also, he's a pop rock artist as well. Thanks for joining the show, Alexi Lalas. Wow, you read it exactly as I wrote it, uh, and uh, with the right kind of inflection, so I appreciate that. That was a wonderful introduction. Pleasure to be here. What are we talking about today? We're talking about you. Which... Oh, God. All right. <laughs> a topic I'm sure you know a lot about. <laughs> it's debatable, but I'll try to make something up. So, you're obviously a big-time American soccer player. People know you. I'm curious how you got started in the game. Like, What's, what's your first memory of soccer growing up? So, uh, despite my six foot four, redheaded, uh, suburban uh, type of personality appearance, I am actually half Greek. My father uh, grew up in Athens and came over for university, met my mother here in the United States. And uh, I grew up going back and forth between, like I said, the suburbs of Detroit and Michigan, and then back to uh, Athens, Greece. And so, when I was very young, I even went to school in Greece, uh, in Athens, and my first memories are, uh, you know, in the in the vein of stickball or street uh, court basketball or whatever, is going down to the corner, which was, and it, this is in Athens, Greece, uh, going down to the corner, which was a dirt lot that was abandoned, and for many weeks kind of standing on the sideline, and as is often the case, eventually, uh, you know, the kids are playing pickup soccer down there, neighborhood kids, eventually they say, well, we need somebody, and for, for weeks, they didn't want to pick the American kid. Finally, they just, they, they've come to the, uh, to the end, and they got nobody else, so they throw me in. And, of course, they throw me in in goal. And then I start to learn a few words, a lot of swear words, and then they let me play in the field. And so that's my first memory is really just a sandlot type of existence playing soccer. It's where I got started. But I definitely was, even then, a, a fish out of the water, at water in, in terms of the way that I looked. I was an uh, uh, American redheaded kid. I did not speak the language. But it gave me that Sandlot type of existence and that, that real uh, down and dirty type of development that unfortunately doesn't exist a whole lot when it comes to soccer. And, and to be fair, in sports in, in the modern day, in, in our culture, uh, in particular in the United States. So that's, that's if I look back, that's my first memory of soccer is playing on that corner in Athens. So when you're in Greece, you, you obviously had a lot of exposure over there. What was the American like when you when you were in Detroit? What was the soccer exposure there? Did you did you pick up anything in the streets of Detroit? Yeah, so you know, while I started playing on the corner, I came back to the U.S. Uh, and went to middle school and an elementary school, middle school, and then on to high school. And in that setting, in the United States, it was what everybody else did. I, I did mom and dad coaching and youth, you know, youth teams and juice boxes at halftime and orange peels and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so I was in that type of suburban youth soccer experience that, uh, that shaped me for better or worse. And I know there's an argument and debate about how, how good or bad that type of existence is. But the reality is that that's what the environment was growing up in the 70s and 80s in uh in the suburbs in the united states and from then i went on to travel teams and like i said i, I did everything and followed that path that a lot of soccer players in the u.s uh, have taken i didn't have at my at my uh, uh at my disposal any type of development academy and, and certainly mls wasn't around there and that type of development system and path was non-existent and so 
I went through the whole high school thing and, uh, and playing at a high level when it came to travel, uh, and then went on to college and took that path because that was the path, the only path and the best path that was available. Was there any moment where you thought you were going to play professional hockey over any thought of soccer? Yeah, so growing up in Michigan, it's the law. And I actually played much more hockey than soccer growing up. Uh, and I loved hockey. And I was, if I do say so, I was pretty good at hockey. Uh, I thought about playing hockey. And, and really what, what turned me off, I'll be honest with you, is the environment and the culture that existed. And I just enjoyed the people that were around soccer, not necessarily the players. I love the competition. I love playing, but everybody around it, whether it was the coaches, whether it was the parents, whether it was just the, the environment and the culture, the soccer thing to me just appealed to me. And so I gravitated more towards it, but I played hockey all the way through uh, high school and actually into college. Uh, I still to this day play hockey. Uh, and it's something that means a tremendous amount to me. I, I consider myself a hockey fan and a hockey player, but I really started moving towards soccer because I was good at it, uh, but also because I just really enjoyed, I also enjoyed the international aspect of it. We talked earlier about me being overseas and, and living in Greece. And I always was, I always really enjoyed the fact that when I went out in suburban Detroit and was juggling my ball in the, on the sidewalk in front of my house, that I knew that on the other side of the world, there was a kid just my age doing the exact same thing. And that connection and that, red is something that I, I loved and something that's very unique to our sport. And uh, because it is this sport that's played all over the world, and you, the same cannot be said for those other sports that I was playing, whether it's hockey or baseball or, or, or football or anything else, or, or basketball or anything else. And that, that for me was what I think really um, joined me with the sport from a lifelong perspective. Offside note, how are your Red Wings doing this year? Are they good? Yeah, they're not good. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's interesting because I have a I have a son and and uh, I, I ingrained him in in Red Wings from a young age and he really liked it. But we grew up, you know, he grew up in Los Angeles and so he grew up at a time when the Los Angeles Kings were at their height and were winning Stanley Cups. And you know, every kid wants to be associated with a winning team. And it never occurred to me when he came to me uh, uh, a couple of years ago when Las Vegas came around that I had made him watch so much Detroit Red Wings hockey and it was so bad that he didn't have the context <laughs> that I had where the Red Wings were once good. And so all he knew when it came to the Red Wings was this, this bad team that, uh, that you know finally didn't even make the playoffs after so many years. And so uh, for him, he went right to Las Vegas and that was, uh, that was a, a pretty amazing thing to see. But I completely understand from his perspective, he's off now, he's a Las Vegas Knights uh, supporter when it comes to hockey. And he still, he still likes the Red Wings and all because his dad does. But I've, I've let him leave the flock and, and head off to do what he wants to do. Yeah, the, the Golden Knights had a good little run last year. Yes, indeed. It wasn't too bad to begin with. <laughs> they couldn't finish like the fire did in 1998. But uh, I know. Hey, I know. You kind of let it slide. Uh, what led you to Rutgers? That, that's always been something that's been very interesting yeah, to me. I, I did everything wrong in terms of picking a college. Uh, and in that, you know, I was a, a decent, uh, uh, was a decent student, uh, had average grades and, and SAT scores and all that kind of stuff. I was, uh, I was, you know, a, a high school all American. I was the best player in Michigan, but you know, you have to understand the back of the mid eighties uh, around then, 
people didn't look to Michigan for soccer players. Rutgers, Rutgers is the state university in, uh, in New Jersey for all intents and purposes and has a wonderful wealth of talent right in their backyard. And they didn't need to look out of state. Uh, what ended up happening was I started getting rejection notices and, and papering my wall with rejection notices from Division I college soccer programs uh, and universities out there and colleges and because I wanted to play Division One. And when it came to when I came to the realization, more importantly, my father came to the realization that this kid was not going to go anywhere. Uh, he actually ended up calling Rutgers, and Rutgers was on the bottom of the pile. I had read about Rutgers and Soccer America, so I had put one of their uh, brochures and their applications in that pile. And he called up the coach. Uh, the coach said, "Look, I don't know anything about him, but um, can I meet him?" And so we jumped in the car and we drove the 16 hours out to uh, exit nine off the New Jersey Turnpike right there to Rutgers University in New Brunswick, New Jersey. I'd never been to Rutgers, let alone to New Jersey. We spent about 12 hours with uh, the coach there and he walked me around the facilities. And at the end of it, he said, look, we're going through a rebuilding year. Uh, The best I can do is I can invite you to preseason and I could probably get you into the agriculture school. Now, I grew up in Michigan, but I did not grow up on a farm. But at that point, I would have taken anything. And so... Uh, it was it was the wrong way to pick, but it was the best thing because, like I said, they were going through a rebuilding process. I was able to come in, start immediately. I became uh, you know all, all American immediately. We went to the Final Fours and all that kind of stuff. So, from a soccer perspective, it was everything that I ever wanted. Uh, from a from a lifestyle and uh, change of lifestyle, it was a whole new world. New Jersey is a whole new world, and. I was coming from a very small prep school and obviously coming from the Midwest in, uh, in Michigan, coming to New Jersey to this huge state school. And it was eye-opening to say the least. So with you going the college route and the big discussion nowadays is college soccer versus sure. youth academies going to Europe, are, are you an advocate for college soccer now? I am an advocate in that I don't think that going the college route precludes you from being the best American soccer player to, to ever play the game. Now, you're hedging your bets probably nowadays with the opposite way of going through a developmental type of system. But I also think that we, we have, in our, in our zeal to create better soccer players, uh, we have unfortunately maybe created uh, players that are less equipped to handle the, we, you know, we, we focus so much on that 90 minutes that they play there. They're less equipped to handle that other 22 and a half hours of the day, which is crucial to actually how you function in that 90 minutes. And so the lessons and the good and the bad and all the different experiences that one has in, the, in, the, in a collegiate type of pathway are now all, uh, are, are, are all gone. And so I, I, I just look at it as uh, it's not for everybody. I also will say this, and I'll be and readily uh, will admit that the college soccer situation right now is and continues to become less relevant, specifically because of the way the NCAA rules are governed. And then, you know, they're not going to change them for soccer. And, and the NCAA is a behemoth. But I do think there's a hell of an opportunity for the NCAA if they looked at soccer and looked at it as this proving ground and this ability to help develop soccer players and use the existing infrastructure, lengthen the season, uh, loosen some of the, uh, the strings that are attached and really become a domestic development type of situation that yes, obviously is a student athlete situation. So you get the best, best of both worlds. Uh, but I'm not sure that's going to happen anytime soon, unfortunately. So 
I, I lament the fact that, that college soccer has become less important and less relevant, but I also don't believe that it is completely irrelevant when it comes to developing a soccer player. It has produced guys like Jordan Morris and DeAndre Yellen. Sure, sure. And there will be continue there will continue to be players that and you know, some players need it. And I've and I've seen, you know, look, so we always talk about the players that make it. And we don't realize that that's the tip of the iceberg and the other 99% that don't make it. Uh, if, if, if they don't make it and they still had a collegiate experience, I think they are better off than if they don't make it. And the only thing that they've done is soccer. And we've left them high and dry without any real skills, without any real social skills or practical skills in the world. They haven't gone through that, that socialization process that happens uh, in college um, and had that opportunity to like I said, it's not just about kicking the ball. Guys. It's about all the different things that you go through, the responsibility of going to class, the responsibility of homework, getting your heart broken, getting in trouble, all the different things that college affords you um, and gives you kind of a safety net to experience, to try different things. Uh, but you learn from that. And the lessons that you learn, I think, are valuable, not just from a soccer perspective, but from a life perspective. And uh, so, so, you know, so I just think we have to be really careful as we try to develop better soccer players that we recognize that part of developing better soccer players is developing better people. And part of that part, part of that equation could incorporate an educational experience in a collegiate form. So I want to go back to you for a second. That was a very nice sentiment about college soccer. Well, it's very there's great. a lot of people that don't agree. So and it's, and it's a debate that's not going anywhere anytime soon. And I think we just caught on our microphones one like one of Alexi's rants that people <laughs> like <laughs> those those famous rants. But uh, back back to you. So as as much research as I've done going into this, I could not find anything from 1991 to 1994. So what what was that three years like in your life? What happened? So it, so I finished college in '91. Uh, we were uh, we left. We all had to leave college in the spring of '92 in order to train for the '92 uh, Olympics, which were in Barcelona. And so we spent six months together as a team. And this is an under 23 situation. Uh, the Olympics came and went in the fall in the summer of 1992. And uh, after the Olympics, I had nothing. Uh, and one door closes, another one opens. And what ended up happening was the U.S what was going to be the U.S. World Cup team in 1994 was getting together to train for two years in residency in Southern California starting in 1993. And I got the call from uh, Bora Milutinovic, who was the coach at that point. And look, he had been watching the Olympic team. And really, there's a whole group of us that were fostered and, and then matriculated up to uh, the national team, myself and Kobe Jones and these types of players, Brad Friedels, uh, Mike Burns, all these players that were on that Olympic team in 92 then composed uh, a, a good part of the World Cup team in 1994. So anyway, I get the call. I drive out to California, and this was on a basically a week-to-week contract. And, and it was just a rotating cast of characters. People would come in. If they liked you, you continued. If they didn't, see you. Goodbye. And I was fortunate enough to continue on. And for the next two years, all we did was train twice a day. We had a, uh, a, training, uh, a training facility down in Mission Viejo, California. This could never happen today. But the, 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 the landscape was such at that point that there was no real professional league. And I had never played professionally. I had only played for the, uh, the Olympic team from, an in, uh, from a national perspective, an international perspective. So we got together, and for two years we trained every day, and we just played international games, which is why if you look at my generation, we have so many caps, because for two years straight, all we did was play international games. 
And what it meant was that in the summer of 1994, when it all came to pass for the 94 Olympic or uh, World Cup team, I had never been on the books of a professional club. All of my experience was international. So I did it backwards, as, I, as did others, because usually what you do is you, you go through a youth system, you go to a, a full team, you do well with the full team, your national team calls you, you do well with the national team, and then you get to a, a World Cup. And I did it backwards in that when I stepped on the field, all my experience was international. I had never been on the books of a club team. But so for that three-year period, that's basically what I did was train for the 94 World Cup, hoping that I would even be on that team. And luckily, I, I made my way through. And then the rest is history, as they say. One of the reasons you know, why I'm talking to you today is because of what happened in the summer of 1994 in the World Cup in the U.S. And I lived the power of what a World Cup can do to an individual. It changed my life forever. Not only was the 1994 World Cup your first World Cup, it was the World Cup in the United States. And a lot of people yep. look back on that as the birth of MLS and the birth of this boom in American soccer that a lot of people jumped on board with this. Playing in it, what was the most emotional moment of the 1994 World Cup? So I explained to you that I, you know, I, uh, I grew up in, uh, in Detroit, uh, in the suburbs of Detroit, and as uh, you know, life is full of circles. And the first game that we played in the 94 World Cup uh, it was against Switzerland, and it was in the Pontiac Silverdome, which has long since been uh, torn down. And But that was a place that I went to see the Pistons play, the Detroit Lions play. I went to concerts there. And so to come back and to play a World Cup game, by the way, still to this date is the only indoor game ever played in a World Cup, uh, to come back and to play in the, Detroit, in the uh, Pontiac Silverdome in a World Cup game 10 minutes from where I grew up, that was pretty cool, walking on that field, because not only had I achieved an, an incredible dream, and I was walking on the field representing my country in a World Cup, but I was doing it 10 minutes away from where I grew up. That was, uh, that was uh, a moment that if I could live over and over and over again or bottle it, I certainly would. So 1994 passes. Mm -hmm. You are now looking for employment. So yeah. Padova calls you over there yeah. in Italy. What was the move like? How did you handle the move to play in a major league in Europe? So you know, I, I said, you know, I, I lived the power of a World Cup. And what that power does to an individual is, and I tell this story all the time, but I, I'll tell it again. A couple weeks before the World Cup in 94, I got on a plane and we were traveling as a team. And I got in my middle seat because we traveled the economy and we traveled middle seats. And I sat down <laughs> next to this, uh, this older woman. And we, we struck up a conversation, and she asked me what I did. And I said, well, I play soccer. And she said, well, um, uh, you know, what's your job? I said, well, my, my job is to play soccer. And she said, yeah, what do you do for money? And I said, well, man, I, I play soccer. And three weeks later, I was in front of a billion people. So that, that's just to give you an idea of what soccer was, the landscape of soccer was in the United States at that point, but also the power of what a World Cup can do and the doors that it opens up. And so after the World Cup, uh, the entire world had seen me and, and my aesthetic and the way that I looked and the music and the hair and all that kind of stuff was all part of it. And it was all uh, on my part calculated. And, and that's not a bad word. I, I knew what I was doing. And it comes from my musical background and costume and all that kind of stuff. But what it did was it, it provided all these opportunities to play. And so after the World Cup, I was offered an opportunity in England. I was offered an opportunity in Germany and I was offered an opportunity in Italy. Now, keep in mind, uh, you have to think back, and Italy was very, very different than what it is right now. It was before Bosman, it was before the European community opened up, and Italy was the place to be, the biggest money, 
the most prestige, the biggest stars. That's the place you wanted to go. And so there wasn't even a question. I was going to go to Syria and to be an American in Syria uh, and in the modern day be that first person to do that. That's what I wanted to do. And it had nothing to do necessarily with the money. It had to do with doing something different and doing something big. And uh, once again, that experience from, from a personal perspective as well as a professional perspective changed me forever. Going into that cauldron and that culture of Italy, playing for a very small team whose goal, whose entire goal was just to stay up uh, and not to get relegated because they had just come up. This was the first time they were spending money. Um, to be immersed in that culture and to learn the language uh, and to go the ups and downs on the field and off the field uh, was wonderful. And, and I became a better soccer player for sure, but I also became a better person. So with the experience of Italy, did you feel like you improved as a player from 1994 to 1996? Absolutely. I, I think that the experience of week in and week out, especially as a defender and playing for a, a, a small and therefore uh, weaker team, it meant that every single Sunday I was going up against the best attackers in the world. And I got my ass kicked plenty. But, you know, for, for one minute it was uh, Ravinelli and Viali. The next minute it was Beppe Signori. The next minute it was... Uh, you know, uh, Gulitz. Uh, another uh, next minute, it was Freddie Rincon or Faustina Espria or Stoichkov or whoever it ended up being. Every single team had these incredible stars and names. And so, from a center back's position, it meant that every you know Batistuta when he was going through his scoring sprees, and I had to run around and chase these guys. So it was I, I, I definitely became a better soccer player. Having said that, you know, I stayed there from '94 to '96. I was always I always had a, an eye on coming back because, you know, keep in mind, and you mentioned uh, MLS. MLS came off the back of the 94 World Cup. Originally, it was scheduled to come right after the World Cup, but they had to delay it for a few years in order to make sure they had all their ducks, ducks in a row. And so we went off for those few years and played different places. But we talked about it. And I'll tell you what, as 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 great of an experience as it was in Italy, the day that I got on the plane to come back to the United States to be part of Major League Soccer was one of the proudest days of my life and still to this day remains one of the proudest days of my life because I was starting something that was La Cosa Nostra. It was our thing, uh, warts and all, and we were starting it from scratch. Uh, there was an element of faith. There was a lot of hard work from a lot of people, whether they kicked the ball or people behind the scenes in order to get it ready. And you know, we didn't think at that time in 96 when we started off that we would still be around uh, in 2018. But we, we had some faith that uh, this was the right thing to do, and it was a privilege and uh, an incredible pleasure to be a part of it from the start. So your first team was the New England Revolution. Yep. The most American-sounding team <laughs> with yeah. arguably the, the most high-profile American player. What was the first training session like with the, with the Revs? So it was uh, obviously uh, winter time when we started up uh, the season, and so winter time in New England is <laughs> is, is cold and snowy uh, and difficult to say the least. So we were in a bubble situation where the uh, Patriots used to uh, to run around in the in the bubble, and so this was you know, this was a team that was thrown together. We were all new and you know varying degrees of ability, but. There was just an excitement. So, you know, the, the wins and the losses, yeah, yeah, you want to win and everything. But there was an excitement about being part of something that you could tell your kids and your grandkids about. And that hopefully if it went well, 
it was not just going to last your career, but it was going to last well beyond your career and well beyond your lifetime if, if it went great. So, you know, that's, that's what it was like. But it was Wild West type of stuff in terms of the training uh, facilities, the, um, the play on the field. Uh, obviously, we're very uh, much fewer amount of teams in the league. Uh, and everybody was kind of trying to figure out where they fit in. You talk about identity and you talk about branding and you talk about the supporters culture and all this stuff, the stuff was just coming to fruition. This was also at a time when the internet was just starting to come around and all the different, all these different things were, were happening from a technology standpoint. Uh, and it was just a, it was a fun time to be around soccer, but it was not for the faint of heart because there were realities. And, and even a few years later, uh, around the turn of the century, there was a there was a possibility that the league was going to go away. So um, while while it looks great now, uh, there were some fits and starts going forward, both on and off the field. So you're telling me there wasn't seventy three thousand fans in Atlanta back in 1996? No, <laughs> no, but you know there were there were big crowds in Los Angeles. I mean, they tell the story about the uh, the ownership of Los Angeles having to actually sell tickets because there were so many people that showed up and they didn't realize that so many people were going to show up. But there were plenty of lean times, too. And you know, this, is, this is a labor of love. And as I said, it's not for the faint of heart, it, but it is something that's, that's ours. And we, we take great pride and ownership in it, and we will defend it uh, you know, to, to all ends of the earth because it's something that, uh, that we believe in. And we also understand it's not per- even 20-plus you know, years on, it's still not perfect, uh, and it still has a long way to go. But I'll tell you what, where we were in 94, 95, and then 96 when MLS kicked off, where we were then as, opposed, as compared to where we are right now, if you put it up against any league, let alone any sport in the world in terms of the progression and the evolution and the speed at which that has happened, uh, you would, you're not going to find anybody that's been able to do that the way in the short amount of time in what two decades basically uh, MLS has been able to do. And like I said, it's, it's because of the efforts of a lot of people on and off the field, many of that you will have heard of and many more that you will never have heard of that worked on this labor of love from not, not just 96, but even years before getting it set for the kickoff in 96. I want to come back to MLS in a second, but your, your span between 1994 and 1998, you played regularly for the U S national team. What is the most wild CONCACAF moment you've had? Because you played all over Central America in the Caribbean. Yeah, so a lot of people talk about U.S.-Mexico rivalry and and going down to Azteca. And Azteca is an incredible experience down there. However, if people ask me what was the most difficult place to play, it was actually the old Saprissa Stadium down in Costa Rica. Uh, This was before they built the the new stadium. Uh, And that was just, it was... It was literally uh, the equivalent, uh, soccer equivalent of Thunderdome, you know, and, uh, you know, you would walk in and the amount of batteries, you know, and and I know everybody talks about the bags of urine and all that kind of stuff. And that's absolutely happened and screws and coins and, you know, know, uh, German shepherds all over the place and machine guns and just complete madness. And then you have to go out there and play a game against a very, very good Costa Rica team, usually at midday when it's blazing sun outside, uh, oftentimes, not oftentimes, almost always on a field that was not conducive to putting the ball down and playing necessarily beautiful soccer. And so all of those elements are against you. And uh, you try to explain it to people. It's actually gotten not easier, but certainly better 
uh, in terms of the quality of facilities, in terms of the security. Uh, and, and I think the environments, they haven't been neutered, but they are less intimidating than they have been in the past. Having said that, there's still places that you can go, you know, places like when you go to Haiti and you go to Jamaica, and it's, it's not easy. And that's why people say the CONCACAF uh, you know, process of, uh, of qualifying, you better be ready. Now, that's no excuse for not qualifying, and <laughs> we'll talk about that probably later. But the reality is that it is much more difficult than people realize. And in the current format today, it, nowadays, what you've seen is it's not just U.S., Mexico, and Costa Rica. Uh, you, you, have, you have your Jamaicas, you have your Panamas, you have these teams that are starting to put more money and therefore getting better and more competitive, which is a good thing for CONCACAF. But it's always been a very unique type of experience and one that's very difficult to replicate or train for or prepare for. And uh, unfortunately, not unfortunately, it's just the reality of, of the situation is that there's a lot of people around the world that don't realize and recognize and respect how difficult it can be. And, and you mentioned that these countries are getting more money and they're getting better. MLS helped a lot yeah, we are the, too. Yeah, we are the architects of our own demise to a certain <laughs> extent, but it's a good thing. It's, yeah. it's wonderful because you see you see the likes of Panama and Trinidad and you know a different uh, uh, d- different national teams out there that are using MLS to give their players a higher level of experience and then they're bringing that experience back to the national team. That's that's cool. I mean, Panama qualifying for the World Cup this summer. I know it's at the expense of the U.S., but still, that's an incredible feat. And you saw the joy that came from it. And don't think for a second that that happens without MLS's influence. It, 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 MLS has been a, a huge component of bringing up the quality and the level of so many national teams uh, around CONCACAF. And so it's really helped all of their leagues, or all of their uh, national teams, and all of their cultures. I experienced it firsthand with Remote Quioto and Apatelis down in Houston. Uh, Honduras go. has gotten significantly better in the last 20 years since MLS has become more of a thing. Yep. And, it's, and that's, that's nothing to, to be afraid of from an American perspective. We want more competition because, you know, for a long time it was just Mexico. You know, then we started to creep up to them and make it what I think is now the, the greatest international rivalry in the, United, in, in, the, in the world. You know, you can fight me on that if you want, but uh, but I just think because of the proximity and the ties, it's just such a wonderful rivalry. I hope it doesn't go away in the new configuration going forward. But 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 the good part is that there's so many others now, and it's not a given that you're going to beat an El Salvador or a Guatemala or, or any other or any other team out there. You're going to have yourself a game because despite all the obstacles and all the challenges that I talked about in some of those environments, we were still expected to beat those teams. And more often than not, we did. Yeah, it's not a given I beat Trinidad and Tobago anymore. No. <laughs> uh, get to that later, I guess. Do we have to talk about that? No? Uh, it's, it's going to inform everything, at least for the next four years. <laughs> uh, but go, going back to MLS. So you, you moved on from Revolution in 1997. So what, what was the Metro Stars like? Yeah, that was an opportunity to go to New York, to be honest with you. Uh, you know, for me to play in a city and... Uh, to experience New York and what it was, uh, you know, the problem was the team was not very good, and we were, you know, we didn't win a lot of games. But it was, it was fun. You know, I was playing with the likes of Mike Pecky and uh, Gio Savarisi and these types of players, and, and it was, uh, it was fun. It was, you know, once again, still, even even back then, it was still Wild West. Teams were still trying to figure out who they were, and you know, there were. 
there were there was you know branding changes and and you know what the names of the teams were and obviously the uniforms people talk about the whole 90s effect and and there were some real interesting designs when it came uh, when it came to the uniforms and and the names of the teams and so we were still as a league and as the individual teams everyone was still trying to figure out what was going on but i had a blast in new york it was a good time uh you know the only unfortunate part was that the, the team wasn't good and it didn't last very long because then the next year i got traded off to uh, kansas city to what then were the uh, Kansas City Wizards. And the jerseys, too. <laughs> the jerseys were great. Oh, my goodness. Those jerseys back then. They've gone on to bigger and better things with, uh, with, with, with sporting and, and, uh, and you know, uh, Peter Vermes and all that kind of stuff. It was amazing because when I got traded from New York to Kansas City, I got all these condolence calls. Uh, oh, my God, you have to move to Kansas City. I had a blast in Kansas City. <laughs> Once again, the team was not very good, but just the people were incredible. The city's awesome. I'm so glad that They've, you know, rebranded and the local ownership came in, you know, despite the, the, my love and respect for, uh, you know, for, for, uh, for the ownership that existed there uh, at the time and Lamar Hunt and the, and the Hunts there. Uh, having local ownership come in and, like I said, rebrand and building a new stadium there. It's what we dreamt it was. It could be, but never was when I was there playing for the Wizards. And so they have, without a doubt, gone on to much bigger and better things. And I stayed there for a year. And at the end of that year... You know, I had been burning it really, really hard on and off the field, I will readily admit. And I got to the end of the year in Kansas City. So this had been the end of 1999. And I walked into then coach Bob Gansler's office and I said, Bob, I, I, I can't do this. I got to take a break. And, uh, and, I, and I basically walked away for a year and didn't play for a year. So we called it stepping aside. We didn't want to call it a retirement, or a, but it basically amounted to kind of a sabbatical. Uh, because I knew that that physically and mentally I was fried and I was of no use to the the, the, the Wizards or anybody for that matter. And uh, when I spent that next year, which would have been the uh, in the year 2000, traveling around the country and the world, I started doing some television. I worked for NBC in the Olympics, so I went down to Australia for the Olympics down there. And as is the case in a lot of these stories, there's a, there's a girl uh, that I chased, and uh, ultimately she became my wife. So... There was a lot of things going on off the field for me. And uh, a year later, when I had, had that, gotten that out of my system and did, did what I needed to do, I felt the itch to, to return. And that's uh, when I was living in Los Angeles. And I called the uh, then coach of the Los Angeles Galaxy, Ziggy Schmidt, and said, hey, can I come out and train? How much did 1998 in the World Cup that you're having an effect on the being drained and, and not wanting to continue your career. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 1998, so, you know, it's a, it's a whole nother story. And, uh, it was, it was, in, it was incredibly sad and I, I regret few things in my life, but I regret, uh, the way that I acted and the way the team acted. Uh, and ultimately I regret, I regret the wasted opportunity that is that world cup and that platform as great as it was in 1994, it was equally as horrible in 1998. The team was bad. We wasted that opportunity. Uh, I did and said things that, that if I had to do over again, I probably would have done differently. Um, and we were a better team, and that's, that's the worst of it. And look, you can go listen to podcasts and read articles to get real into the weeds about all the stuff that happened. But the reality is that from a men's national team perspective, every four years we have an opportunity to show not just not, just, not the world, but really to show our own country that we've progressed and that we are worthy of your praise and your attention. And in 1998, we wasted that opportunity. And we can't afford as a nation uh, and as a, a soccer playing culture to waste those opportunities. 
you, there's a beautifully done podcast by Roger Bennett and WNYC Studios called American Fiasco. You can go find that. It's not often I promote other podcasts than my own podcast, but uh, <laughs> That's all right. it's a beautifully told story. Uh, yeah, Roger did a great job. He did a really good job on it. And we all, look, we all have our versions of 1998 and our versions of history, and we all have different ways that we think about it and our different recollections, but I think he did a really good job of bringing everybody together, and I think you get a good idea of the dysfunction that existed, the personalities and characters, and, and look, I, I readily raise my hand and admit that, um, that, uh, that, you know, that I have a, a healthy ego. I think I've managed at times to... Uh, to to use it to my advantage and to curtail it uh, and to harness it in a positive way, but you know there was a there was a lot of crazies on that team, and you're talking to one right now. So you put us all in a room, and some things can happen, good things, and at times some bad things. I have to ask you about one story from that podcast, and, sure. then, and then we'll move on from 1998. I know it's a very un- unpleasant memory, but. Eric Winaldo told a story about when you lost your starting position, you standing on top of the air conditioner in the hotel room and a shower cap your underwear and playing guitar one is two-part question one where were you playing and two was that the low point yeah i mean these are first world problems let's be honest i mean i lost the starting position on the national team but you know when you're in the moment you think it's the end of the world and all that and you know i i like i you know i i mentioned to you in 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 90 after 99 I, I, I had been burning it at both ends and all these different opportunities and stuff on and off the field. I, I, I don't regret any of it in terms of the, 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 uh, the opportunities and, and, and taking advantage of all the opportunities. But, you know, at, at times, you know, at that point I was a 20 something still, you know, kind of moronic, uh, and just trying to figure out my, my, my place in life. And this, my life had changed so much. So, yeah, I, what was I playing? I don't know what I was playing at that point. It probably would have been some, I don't know, John Mellencamp or something ridiculous. I, I don't know what it, what it was at that time. But uh, that, that Eric remembered that, I, I never would have remembered that. Probably because I, I did it often. And, uh, and, but that, that, you know, that was the relationship that we had. Uh, you know, he would look at me in that moment and go, this guy's nuts. But I would look him, at him in another moment and I could give you funny stories of, of how Eric's nuts. But it, it worked. And I'll tell you what, that's, you know, that's why I say 1998 was such a disappointment because as good as we were in 1994 and as much of an impact we made, we were then four years older and all of us had had all these experiences. You know, I had gone to Italy, other guys had gone to different places in Europe and we were so much better as a team in terms of our ability, but we couldn't get it together. And there was a lot of infighting and as I said, a lot of dysfunction that didn't need to happen. And, uh, but you're also dealing with some some big egos, some big personalities. We don't apologize for them because I think that's what helped make us good. And it was combustible. And, and that's why they call it, sometimes I'll call coaches managers because your ability to manage those personalities and get the best out of them and deal with all the ridiculous stuff that goes on uh, behind the scenes, that's really what makes you a good coach. The X's and O's, that's, that's all fine and well. But your ability to get two people that might hate each other to play well together or one guy that might just won't even listen to you and is just out of his freaking gourd, but is a great player to buy into a team system and do what you want him to do. Well, that's that's what real coaching and managing is. But uh, you were living in Los Angeles. 
was it the fact that the galaxy were on the rise? Was it the fact that you wanted a trophy or why did yeah, you come back to the galaxy? Yeah. Everybody wants to win. Every player wants to win. I had played uh, for a number of teams and a number of years in major league soccer and I hadn't won anything. And I wanted to be at a place where at least I had a chance to win. And I, I, I was smart enough to look and see that the galaxy were perennial contenders. They had yet to win an MLS cup. And so I called up Ziggy Schmidt and I said, listen, I'm, I'm living here in Los Angeles right now. And he said, well, come out and train. And so I trained for a few, uh, few weeks and he pulled me aside after one se- a, a session after a couple of weeks. And he said, listen, if you're thinking about coming back, uh, I, I, I want you to think about coming to LA. And, uh, it was, it was just good timing. And so they actually ended up doing a deal because keep in mind the Kansas city wizards who I had been playing for had moved on in, in such great fashion that he, they had gone out and won MLS cup the next year. So maybe I was the factor why they weren't doing anything, but anyway, they had gone on and they had moved on. So, but they had to trade something. And so, uh, my rights were acquired by the galaxy and they signed me and, uh, but then for the next three years, uh, it was the most productive and most successful point of my major league soccer career in that we ended up winning an, uh, an MLS cup, a, uh, an open cup, a, uh, what would now be considered a, uh, CONCACAF champions league title. Uh, so, you know, all, it just, it all came together in Los Angeles with the galaxy and I am forever indebted to, uh, Ziggy Schmidt, who we lost a few weeks ago for giving me that opportunity and really providing that opportunity for me to be successful. When we finally won that MLS Cup, it was a celebration, but I'll tell you what, it was a relief because you never wanted to be questioned, well, did you win MLS Cup? Did you win MLS Cup? And I wanted to be able to say, yes, I did it. And so I felt in a tr- tremendous, tremendous sense of accomplishment, but even more so a sense of uh, relief. And to, a, to be playing with great players like Mauricio Sinfuegos and Carlos Ruiz and Kevin Hartman and Matt Reese and these types of, uh, you know, great midfielders, Simon Elliott and, uh, you know, these, these players that were so good and to be part of that team, uh, Kobe Jones running around. I mean, it was, it was totally back with Kobe Jones, all that kind of stuff. That was, that was really, those were some fun years in Los Angeles because we were so good. Um, and it's just more fun when you're good. <laughs> <laughs> so you recognize that success is based on winning and, and, you know, you obviously not having a trophy in Major League Soccer was going to be a, a bad little mark on your career. So it would, you, it would eat away at me. It would eat away at me. You know, I mean, because and I mean, look, it, and it's only it's it's only me. Like nobody else really would care, but I I cared. I wanted to, and, and you know, I always reminded myself. You know, we I, I talked a little bit earlier about you know the aesthetic and the hair and the music and all that kind of stuff. And I make no apologies for the fact that I am an entertainer. I am in the entertainment business. Uh, when you say that, sometimes people cringe. But uh, in no way does that mean that I'm not competitive uh, or it's not genuine or truthful or honest in the way that, uh, that, that I am going about my business. But I recognize that I am a performer. I go out there on stage. I want to elicit a reaction by what I'm doing, by the skills that I'm using to entertain you and perform for you. And... But I always reminded myself that, you know, the costume and the way that you act and the things that you do and they say, that's all fine and well. But you have to you have to make sure you back it up with performance and with those tools and those skills that you have and bringing them each and every day. And for a number of years, I didn't back it up in terms of winning. And so I wanted to put those two together. Uh, and the last time I had done it would, you know, would have been in the summer in, uh, in 1994. 
And so I wanted to feel what it was like to win again and to be part of a winning team again. And I hadn't for many years. So you, you came back, you wanted to win MLS Cup. You did in 2002. Why did you come back after that? You retired in 2004, so those two years where you kept playing. Yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to, to continue to 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 see what the LA Galaxy had to offer. We continued and did well. I mean, we still went to MLS Cups, and we still won things, and so it was fun. And then at the end of 2003, uh, I would have been 33 years old at that time, I walked into Ziggy Schmidt's room, and just as in that moment on that field when he pulled me aside and said, hey, we'd like you to come play for the Galaxy, he looked at me and said, hey, it's over. <laughs> and it has nothing to do with salary or anything like that. We're moving on in a different direction. That was good. I'm a big boy. He, you know, he was great and professional in the way that he did it. And one door closes and another one opens up. So uh, almost immediately I got a call from the, uh, the, you know, the front office folks downtown at AEG, uh, Antrix Entertainment Group, which owned the LA Galaxy. And I got uh, you know, pulled into a, an office with Tim Laiwicki, who was the head of AEG, who I had known over the years because of my playing with the Galaxy. And he said, listen, we have an opportunity up in San Jose. Uh, uh, we'd like you to go up there and be the president of San Jose, the earthquakes, because they own the earthquakes also. Now, like I said, I was 33 years old. I had never been in charge of anything from a business perspective. All my experience had been on the field from a playing perspective. But I was also smart enough to recognize, and, and, and young players, and not just young players, but players ask me all the time about, that transition. I say, look, uh, your career never ends when you want it to, but you got to be smart enough to recognize when there's a jumping off point. You can keep playing and I don't begrudge you the opportunity. And, and if that's what you want to do, but recognize that that jumping off point may come at a time when you're not necessarily ready for it, but you got to be mature enough to say, I'm going to take it right now because it might not be there when I want it to be there. And I knew that that point, while I could have continued to play and gone and found another team, there was a jumping off point and an opportunity that I couldn't pass up because I knew if I played a few more years, it might not be there. And so I said, hell yeah. And I went up and my career in the front offices started for what it would have been the next five years or so. So obviously your, your front office history is what it is. It doesn't seem like the smartest decision to take a guy 33 years old and make him the president of a team with zero experience other than playing soccer. You got to admit, that was probably not the wisest decision on their part. Well, it depends. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, it, was, it, was it traditional? No. Uh, was it prudent? Well, keep in mind that this was a much smaller type of situation than the Los Angeles Galaxy. This was a team that, the, that AEG was looking to divest from. This was also a team, as we will find out later, that ended up moving to Houston. And so this was a team where... Uh, I could I could mess it up and it wouldn't have as big a, a uh, an effect, a, a impact as other places, let's say. And I know that's no consolation to the folks up in San Jose, but I think that that was probably some of their thinking. But that's not my problem. I was given an opportunity. I'm certainly not going to throw it back or or justify it from my perspective. And what it did was it gave me a on the job type of learning experience that even though I'm not in the front offices anymore, it was such a huge, huge lesson and adventure and experience that has shaped me. Uh, and that because I went from San Jose, then I went to the, the Metro Stars, and then I came back to Los Angeles. Three very, very different types of environments. But to be exposed to the men and women that each and every day work to sell the game, 
uh, was such an eye-opening experience for me because as a player, you are you're really kind of insulated uh, and and you know uh, rightfully so because your job is what you do on the field. But a lot of times you don't have the understanding and the awareness. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, even the respect for those men and women that each and every day are selling this product. And so I was just thrown in to a, a, a work environment that was very, very foreign to me. Because a lot of people will tell you, well, it's just like a locker room and it's about management and it's about leadership. and It's about communication. No, it's not at all. A front office or an office environment is not like a locker room. And I would submit to you, if you treat it like a locker room, you're in for a rude awakening. And so I had to learn a whole new way to, to lead and to do all of those things, but in a completely different way. And I made so many mistakes. And I was, you know, I was, I was certainly not the, the best at my job by any stretch of the imagination, but I learned a whole lot. And it taught me a lot of things that I still use to this day. Also, I appreciate the, the San Jose team moving to Houston because that's one of the reasons <laughs> I have a job. That's maybe the only reason I have a job, but, but I want to, I want to skip ahead to the galaxy front office for a second. Sure. You were part of the group that signed David Beckham. Mm-hmm. So how did that go? Like, wh- what was that conversation like? And how did that go about? So, uh, so in San Jose, I was with a team that was moving. So that's a, that's a whole, that's a whole different and strange type of environment. I went to New York with the, with the, and I was the president of the Metro Stars. That was a team that was getting sold and rebranded into the Red Bulls at the time. So that was a whole other type of environment. Then I came back to the Los Angeles Galaxy, and the Beckham thing came about. This was something that had been fostered for many years through Tim Wiki and his relationship with, uh, with David Beckham and the David Beckham uh, Academy that they had started with AEG. And so this was... Tim doing what he does best, which is seeing around the corner and seeing down the road and, and laying the foundation for something big and bold. Uh, it was, it was uh, <laughs> how do I explain this? It was a hurricane. And it was <laughs> unlike anything anybody had, even people that were experienced, because I was still relatively unexperienced at that time, but even the folks that were experienced had never experienced something like that. And the David Beckham hurricane was something that had to be done looking back on it was absolutely the right thing to do and fundamentally changed the entire league forever. But we as a organization, as a club, Los Angeles Galaxy, had to deal with that hurricane. And it was intense. And, and, and we didn't do it well for a number of years, to be quite honest with you. And there was plenty of collateral damage, including uh, yours truly, ultimately, when I was fired after uh, a couple of years and the coach was fired at the same time because while while the business of a Los Angeles Galaxy and a, in this case a Los Angeles Galaxy with David Beckham because my job was the uh, product on the field and monetizing it off the field and I got the monetization part of it right <laughs> off the field I just didn't get the product right on the field in terms of giving the Los Angeles Galaxy season ticket holders and, and fans out there the consistent quality product that they expected and so. Uh, I, uh, you know, look, I, I look back on that fondly, even as painful as it was. And once again, an incredible learning experience going through that. And now the Los Angeles Galaxy, when Zlatan comes in, they're much more adept at handling a situation like that. But you kind of had to go through the David Beckham situation to become that super club that the LA Galaxy has become. So you moved on from the front office role into television 
Uh, you did the World Cups with the ESPN. You did the 2015 Women's World Cup with the uh, with Fox, and then the 2018 World Cup in Russia this past summer. What's been the highlight of switching to television and having all these um, these colleagues and these these memories on television? Uh, I get to travel, uh, which I love to do. I get to. Uh, you know, I get to do these incredible events. You mentioned World Cups, so whether it's men's World Cups in, uh, you know, South Africa and in Brazil and in uh, Russia and women's World Cups in Canada and all the things in between, I get to do so much. You know, I get to talk and I get to debate and I get to argue and I get to rant, like you said, about a sport that I love, and I get to do it on a daily basis. Uh, I. I I love doing that. I grew up in a household that encouraged you to debate. Uh, I grew up in a household that encouraged you to defend your position, uh, whether you believed in it or not, to be quite honest. Uh, and I grew up, uh, in, but I did also grew up at a time where soccer didn't have that and, and still to a certain extent doesn't have enough of that the way that other sports do. And so the ability to be able to do that with so many great men and women each and every uh, day and each and every week and each and every year. And, you know, I had a great time at ESPN and now moving to Fox uh, and what has happened with Fox and what we do over there. Uh, you know, it's just it's just fun to be involved in this in the sport in a different capacity. The other part of it is is it's very stressful uh, and intense and you're your psyche and your mentality is affected by the scores of games when you're working in a front office, when you're a coach, when you're a president, when you're a GM, when you're a technical director. Uh, and, and that can be, that, that can not only take a, take a toll on you, but it can take a toll on your family. And so I, I, I am incredibly fortunate and I, I pinch myself and remind myself each and every day, never to take it for granted. And there are people out there that would kill or die for this and they can, they can pry it from my cold, dead hand, but I, I make sure that I remind myself how lucky and fortunate I am and privileged I am to be able to do this uh, each, and every, uh, each and every day. And uh, I don't want to do anything else. And, and I, I tell people all the time, because people ask me, do you want to coach? I say, no, I don't want to coach. There may come a time in the future where I want to coach, but right now I love what I do, and I want to be surrounded by people that are junkies like me for, for what we do. And I find a lot of people in my business are just passing through and I get it. You know, you're, it's a way station. You're waiting for something better to come along and, and you know, a, a job, a coaching job or front office job or something like that. And you get away with that for a little bit, but I think ultimately it will manifest itself in your performance. And I think you're not just cheating yourself, but you're cheating the viewer. And I don't ever want to be in that position where I feel like I'm cheating myself or the viewer. And I'm really fortunate to be surrounded by a lot of people that love this sport and love being on this side of the sport. And we want to do better. Because I think there's a whole lot, a lot of room for improvement and growth in this industry, and it's just going to get bigger because soccer's not going anywhere, and the the you know the broadcast of soccer and the talking about soccer and the debate about soccer and the narratives and the stories, all that kind of stuff, it's just going to keep going. There'll be different platforms, and it might migrate to different places, but that human interaction and communication and uh discussion and argument and debate about sports that's as that's as old as sports and that's not going anywhere i asked you a question when i uh was with you and rob in houston about the difference between being on the sideline and the pre and post game show versus being in the booth yeah 
Now, you haven't done a lot of booth work recently with Stu Holden kind of taking that, that A-team color job with John yeah. Strong. Do you miss being in the booth at all? Uh, look, I am, my first love is studio. Uh, I think it's where I am best and certainly where I'm most comfortable. When I do, uh, when I do color commentary, which I actually love and I've, and I've really grown to love even more, I, I, I fully recognize that my, my character and my persona is, is very different. And I think it, it has to be um, it, because I think it fits for that type of performance. And so I, I, don't, I, I don't miss it um, because, because I, I, you know, I have plenty of studio work that I do. And, uh, but but I wanna, if, if I continue to do it, and I, by all accounts I'm going to continue to do it, I want to keep getting better, but I, I understand that, you know, if you try to be somebody else or somebody that you're not, it, the, the viewer or the listener is going to see that. And so I, I know that I'm doing it differently than, than what I'm performing as a, as a studio analyst, but I, it's still me and it, it's still a reflection on me, but it's the only way that I can, that I can possibly do it. And I can get better. All of this stuff I can get better. And that's why I want to continue to do it because I know that, whether it's studio or whether it's uh, color commentary or anything else when it comes to soccer, I know that I can get better. We can all get better. And as soon as you think that you've got it made, believe me, television will cut you down to size <laughs> and, and you will you will be in for a rude awakening. I, I talked about you missing the boot. You did have a, a fantastic call of Wayne Rooney's goal with J.P. Delahammer this year. Um, oh, that, yeah, was, that was wonderful. <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> It was amazing. That was you know, that was that was uh, that was funny, and and you know uh, you know Stuart Holden, who I, who I love, and is and talk about uh, improving, and, and you know that guy uh, works so hard, has done a really really good job, and he's and he's great. At, also with uh, with Turner doing the hosting stuff and, and all that, uh, and I got a lot of time and love for uh, for Stu. You know we do we do things differently, and we, we we see the game differently at times, and we all and obviously our performances are are, are, are different. And, you know, I, I watch how he does it. I watch how other people do it. And, you know, sometimes I try to pick and choose different things from, uh, from different people out there. Uh, but ultimately, I, I think the human element has got to be there. And so, you know, for example, that, that situation, there, there were no words because it, it, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And yet I was seeing it in front of me. And sometimes, you know, your body just takes over and does what it's going to do. And that, you know, that that person that on the couch would be doing that shows up in the booth. And that's, that's, that's a good thing. You can't be all that. Uh, but I think in that moment, it just showed that this was, you were witnessing something uh, that, that almost defied words. It was, it was something that, that didn't, it's not that it didn't deserve words, it's that there were no words in that moment that could adequately describe what was happening. I just love the laugh in the back while JP's trying to, <laughs> trying to do the yeah, game. Soccer will surprise you and soccer will make you scratch your head. And, you know, soccer, uh, it, 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 it will make you laugh uh, in that, damn, I, I didn't think that that could happen. And there it is. But I, I've had John on my personal show where I, it's, it's an interview show where I talk to people in their daily life and all, all kinds of people had John on that show. Then I met JP in Houston for the open cup final. And I asked them both about you and how, how you operate as a color analyst. And they, you're very eccentric in the way you do television. And I think it's a lot different from most former players and most people in general, but 
your color commentary, and I love Stu Holden. Stu Holden's a fantastic broadcaster, but for me, and I don't know because I'm a Lexi Laws fanboy, but I, I really like when you do television, and they, and they seem to appreciate your color commentary oh, a lot. That's, thanks. that's very nice of you. I, I, I appreciate it. Look, you know, there's there's no there's no right way to do it and you know what's been really interesting and you're, you're talking to an old guy and we've gone through this in this this, <laughs> this long period of time here and i've seen how the you know the game has changed and look there are there are a lot of young voices out there that are looking to you know to take to take john's spot and to take jp's spot and take my spot and all that and that's good bring it on I, I i love it because we get to make this game whatever it is that we want and we 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 we're not burdened by a long history, uh, or at least by a tradition that dictates that this is how you're supposed to televise the game. This is how you're supposed to talk about the game. You know, this is how you're supposed to you know, even play the game. And that's that's fun. That's fun to have this this blank canvas almost uh, where we can make it whatever we want. And there's there's going to be some young voices out there that do some things differently, and that's that's a good thing. I I like that 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 you can appreciate and, and like something that I'm doing, that makes, that makes me very, very happy. Believe me, there's, there's plenty of other people, and you, you find out very, very quickly that you got to have a really thick skin, and I can't go about trying to please everybody. You know, there's that, that Aesop's fable about trying to please everybody and end up please, pleasing nobody. And so I just have to do what is comfortable for me, obviously do the work, and, you know, when you see guys like JP and John Strong and you see the amount of work that goes in, a lot of, a lot of times people will come up to me and ask me, well, what is... What does your work entail and your research and stuff like that? And I, I equate it to this, you know, to this iceberg theory where what actually you see on air is so minimal compared to all the work that's gone into it. But if you don't do that work, then you don't have that foundation. And what you do see at the tip of that iceberg suffers. And so when I see John Strong and JP and, and, and all the different people, Ali Wagner and, 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 and Rob Stone and Kate Abdo and all these people that I work with and people that I have worked with in the past, you know, your, uh, your Bob Lees, you know, these types of people that, that are legends. And you see the work that they put in uh, and you recognize that they're not, they're not just winging this. Um, and, and, and you understand the craft and how professional they are it just it's it's awesome to even be be a part of that and uh i thank my lucky stars for all the things that have uh, that have come to me and i recognize they could be taken away tomorrow so if that happens i'm going to enjoy it while i'm here you said there's a lot of people gunning for john's job and your job and Stu's job i'm gunning for rob's job i want to do bowling <laughs> college football college basketball and soccer it's amazing! Oh my God! If, if 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 there was ever a sport, you know, Rob Stone's not far behind. Even a new sport, they might just come out with a new sport. And there's Rob Stone <laughs> giving it to you. So, and but that's the mark of just a, an incredible professional and an incredible talent. And you know, I he's he's one of my great friends, and we've been together for a long time. And and I, I'm so happy for his success, and I'm so happy for the recognition that people have of how good he is and how versatile. And I know sometimes that can play against you, but in this case, if if you need somebody and you need somebody good and you need somebody who can figure it out very, very quickly, that's Rob Stone. Because, I mean, come on, let's be honest. It's impossible, even from just from a soccer perspective. People ask me all the time about this league or this player or something like that. It's impossible, especially actually from soccer, because of the international aspect of it, it's impossible to know everything. And and I don't I don't claim to. But what I need to do is when that red light turns on, I need to know it then. 
And so talk to me, <laughs> talk to me then. And that's, that's important because the, the, the best trick you can play is having people think that you have this incredible knowledge and this incredible past. And sometimes you do. But the reality is that there's so much soccer and there's so many players and so many teams going on that it's next to impossible for a human being to be able to do it, uh, to, to be able to know everything about everything. But you don't have to know everything about everything. You have to, and that's where you get really efficient as you get older, is understanding what you need to know and what, to me, more importantly, what you don't need to know. I'm going to end it by asking this. You, you talked about you being a coach. What is the right opportunity? What is the right situation for Alexi Lawless to become a coach? Well, I guess first I have to get fired, which is all, all very possible. Believe me, <laughs> I open my mouth. Uh, no, I mean, I'm, and, and I'm being a little flip, but um, I don't know. I'd be a damn good coach. I, I, I think about it every <laughs> once in a while. I would be a damn good coach. I mean, there there are a lot of teams out there that should be so lucky as to have me as a coach. Um, I. So what, the, the scenario that would have to happen, I would I would probably be I mean so I talked earlier about the the you know the challenging and difficult type of uh, lifestyle that is coaching in terms of the traveling and how the, the impact that it has on your your family. Uh, I have children, so I guess it would have to be at a time if I could if I could just lay it out and say whatever I wanted. It would have to be at a time where you know my kids are no longer impacted and affected by something like that. Um, so I guess I guess that's still in the future. Dad of the year. Yeah, we can well, add that to the list. Talk to them first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, you know how I, I I enjoy challenging people and debating people. Try you know try that when you're you know a 13 year old or a 10 year old and you're trying to uh, you're you're trying to justify a decision that you've made and your dad comes in you know with a uh, you know, a hot take about why uh, why you're wrong. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm actually much, much, very different uh, with with in, in a family type of situation than I am uh, in terms of the persona and the character that uh, that appears on your screen or or uh, out of your speakers. So, you retired. Ninety six caps for the United States, nine goals, inducted into the Soccer Hall of Fame in two thousand six. You're an accomplished American soccer player. You're an accomplished American television personality. I have to ask you this before I let you go. We're do- we're done talking about you. Oh, it was boy. an it was an hour and ten minutes of you. Oh wow, boy! Well, believe me, nobody's listening anymore. They would have turned <laughs> off after the first first couple of minutes. So, <laughs> hey, we got the clicks. That's all that matters. Um, we mentioned 2018. It's 2019 now, so we can just yep. say that's the past. The U.S. did not make the World Cup. So yep. over the next four years. When we get to 2022 in Qatar, no sleep till Doha. Yep. What is this going to look like? Like, what do we have to do in four years to be able to get back to World Cup performances that we are actually proud of? Well, so I don't think this is a total rebuild, but what I what I'm looking for in terms of this team come 2022. Well, I mean before 2022 because you obviously have to qualify, and that's what causes problems. Uh, in uh, in the fall of 2017, but ultimately, what I I want to see a pissed off team. I want to see a team that wants to put things right. I want to see a young team, one that sees an opportunity and takes real ownership of the legacy of this team. 
uh, and in its current in its current form. And and all that is to say that what I hope is that we see a group of players that are cultivated and fostered through Greg Berhalter right now with an understanding of exactly what they want individually from the players and collectively as a team and that this is how they want to play. And because we talk so much about systems of play and philosophy and blah, 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 blah. But actually articulating it, I think, is important. I think Greg's actually done a pretty good job over the last month, the last couple of months here, uh, articulating it, saying this is how we're going to play in detail that we haven't seen in the past, to be quite honest. Now, it's all fine and we're talking about it. Then it's got to show up on the field and, and manifest itself on the field. And once that happens, um, that's, that's, that's a step in the right direction. Then there has to be, I think, a recognition that we need to put things right. We need to get back to the World Cup and get back on course. And that's, that's a rallying cry as far as I'm concerned. And that's why I really kind of wanted this baby with the bathwater thing in, in that all new players that aren't burdened with that, with that past and that incredibly epic and historic failure of not qualifying for 2018. And it doesn't mean you get rid of Christian Pulisic or anything like that, but that young, that young group saying, you know what, not on my watch. And, and that can manifest in a bunch of different ways, but ultimately uh, a team that, that, that's got some swagger, but also has backing that swagger up a responsibility to themselves, to their team, to the country, hell, to me, <laughs> <laughs> to, to put things right. That's, that's ultimately what I want to see. And, you know, what I want to see doesn't really matter. It's, it's ultimately what, the, what they're going to be, uh, what, what Greg Berhalter on that team does. And they don't, you know, I'll, I'll scream and yell at different times, but, uh, you know, that's, that, that would be ideal. And I think that there's a really good chance you're going to see that. And I think the first time to really judge this team in terms of the progress, not ultimately judge it, but in terms of progress will be this summer uh, during the Gold Cup, which, by the way, you can see on Fox, uh, as you can see the Women's World Cup. Uh, so this summer I think is going to be really big for Greg Berhalter, uh, and for soccer in general because of the Women's World Cup, too. So some really good things coming this summer uh, when it comes. And a, a, progress, a, a progression to that ultimate qualifying and then doing well at the 2022 World Cup when it comes to the U.S. Women's National Team. I'm sure John Brooks is running onto the pitch thinking, am I about to make Alexi proud? <laughs> yeah, I never, I'm sure they're really concerned with how I feel about <laughs> it. Oh. <laughs> uh. This was good. Alexi, I appreciate you making the time. Um, hey, well, listen, uh, I, I, I've never talked so long and, and much about uh, a subject that is so near and dear to me, which is myself. So <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you letting me do that. I, I, I will only end it by saying that, and, and, I, and I often say this to, to different folks, and you deserve it just like anybody else. While many of us that kick the ball get a tremendous amount of, of, of credit and attention for where we are, it's, it's the work of, of all the men and women uh, that, that don't even kick the ball at different times to just push this thing ahead. And it might not go as fast as we want at different times, but thank you for what you're doing and what you have done and what you will continue to do to help this game. We are all in this together. We all might have different ideas, and at times we might go different directions, and at times we might fight. But ultimately this is, as I said, a, a labor of love, la cosa nostra. The American soccer culture is incredibly diverse and interesting and complex, but I also think it's incredibly discerning and passionate, um, and there's a lot of love 
for what we are creating here. And as I said, we have different ways uh, at times of thinking about it, but ultimately it's, uh, it, it's ours. And I'm just incredibly fortunate and privileged to have played a part for a number of, uh, of decades and to be able to make a living in this game that I love so much. And, uh, you know, onward and upward, on and off the field. And I hope, uh, I wish good things for you and your family and, uh, and everything that you're doing in 2019 and for everybody out there that's listening. You know, I, I made a goal for 2018 to interview uh, five people and you were on the list and I interviewed you in March. So, and I interviewed four of those five people in 18. So I, I feel like I needed to shoot higher. So to have you on eight days into 2019, I feel like is is a good start, but we're shooting for Bob Lee. Oh man, the general, the general, the general. That's awesome. <laughs> I love interacting and communicating with people that agree or disagree, and and I've always said, you know, it doesn't it doesn't matter. I think we can do it, and and we certainly do. But I and the greater we out there, uh, you know, I hope and, and believe that we can communicate and disagree at times but be cordial and be respectful about the way that we do it it doesn't mean you don't have passion it doesn't mean you don't raise your voice at different times but you know i think sometimes uh we we love to you know we have this inferiority complex when it comes to our our soccer culture and we love to eat our own at different times and and at times that's that's not okay but at times i understand why why it's done but i just think Sometimes we also have to recognize that we are all in this together. And so, you know, t- you know, talking to you and, and uh, you know, I can get as much from a, a conversation with you as I can get with somebody who's been in the business for, for, you know, for 30 years or something like that. So I, I find I enjoy doing it. So this is this is something that I like to do. And I continue to do it with a lot of different people out there um, because uh, I I enjoy interacting with human beings. And I especially enjoy interacting with human beings that have a love uh, for this game. So I, I wish you all the luck going forward. And uh, once again, thank you for, uh, uh, you know, thank you for reaching out. I appreciate you making the time. That was Alexi Lawless in the story of us.